It feels to me like we've been in an odd season the past few years in our country. We've kind of seen an uptick in recent years of various kinds of cultural disturbances, disruptions. We've had protests and violent riots over things like politics and social justice, the pandemic, Supreme Court decisions, and I'm sure many other examples could just be multiplied, stacked together. And a lot of these issues have been identified as what is called part of the culture wars. I guess you could say that that we live in a pretty disruptive time. I have noticed one thing, though, something that we really don't see in modern times is that a riot doesn't usually start because people are reacting to Christians just following Jesus. I've preached in many churches in different parts of the country, and never once have I started a riot, not even one. Have any violent mobs broken out over how you and I follow Jesus? Today's sermon passage is a challenge to us, I think, because in it, a riot actually does break out due to the fact that there are new believers in Ephesus who start following Jesus. And after looking at this passage over the last couple of weeks, I can't help but feel that following Jesus in committed discipleship ought to cause a disturbance, at least sometimes. Maybe not a full-on riot, but at least some kind of cultural disruption. Our following Jesus should make other people uncomfortable at least some of the time. It's okay, I want to give us permission this morning to stir the pot a little bit, to, to make people a little bit uncomfortable for all the right reasons as followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul seemed to create riots in just about every town he preached in caused all kinds of disturbance. And the question that became obvious to me as I was thinking about this is, why don't we? Why don't we cause disturbance? Why don't we cause riots? What's the difference? I'm not necessarily advocating for like violent riots, protests, that sort of thing. I'm just asking the question, what's different? Acts 19 reminds us that committed discipleship will always make the world nervous, and it should. If our following Jesus never disturbs anyone or disrupts anything, it makes me wonder if perhaps we're not quite as in step with the New Testament's vision of discipleship and gospel witness as we think we are. And so today, as we continue our journey through the second half of Acts 19, here's the message that I'd like for us to take away from it. It's a corporate calling to us as a church. Follow Jesus together in committed discipleship to be a disturbing gospel witness. So today we're basically going to be looking at how to disturb friends and influence people. (laughs) So let me read the kind of lengthy passage in Acts 19, 21 to 41, and we'll see how we get to this message. Follow Jesus together in committed discipleship to be a disturbing gospel witness. I'm actually going to start reading back in verse 11 for context of the story that uh, we left off last week that continues into our passage this morning. We find Paul in Ephesus, and the author of Acts, Luke, writes this. And God was doing extraordinary, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
seven sons of a Jewish high priest, quote-unquote high priest, named Sceva, were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they called out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So that's our passage this morning, from which we'll see three ways 
committed discipleship can create gospel disturbance. The first way committed discipleship can create gospel disturbance is that committed discipleship takes personal faith public. Committed discipleship takes personal faith public. I'm actually going to dip back into that passage last Sunday to set the foundation. You'll remember last week in in verses 18 to 20 that as the fear of the Lord fell upon many of the citizens of Ephesus due to the mighty and miraculous nature of Paul's ministry and the ability of their own sorcerers to replicate it, many came to faith in Jesus and had a powerful movement of repentance. Ephesus was known for its practice of magic, and and the new disciples publicly committed themselves to following Christ by torching all of their books of magic arts, the value of which is noted to be the equivalent of several million dollars. No turning back for them. They publicly burned the bridges, so to speak. If you can imagine this giant bonfire of of these valuable books, which I'm also sure brought them economic income, that's a very dramatic picture and a very public stake in the ground. I'm no longer living the life that I used to live. I'm now a disciple of Jesus. And this began shortly to have dramatic and public effect in the city of Ephesus. Ancient Ephesus was a magnificent city of several hundred thousand residents, And yet the impact of these new believers walking away from their previous life of magic arts and idol worship at the temple of Artemis was severe. And all of that is what leads to the statement in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. A.K.A. Christianity. That's what they called it. The way. So big problems are brewing, and and they're brought to a head by one Demetrius, the silversmith, who makes and sells silver replicas of the ancient temple of Artemis and, and does quite well financially, apparently, at least in normal times. We'll talk a little bit more about the worship of Artemis and the temple of Artemis in a bit, but for now it's just important to know that Demetrius calls a meeting of what we might call a local trade union. You know how those can go. And so he, he calls these tradesmen together, verse 24 to 27. Uh, and, and he says, For a uh, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Right? He's hitting the alarm. There is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He says, open your eyes, guys. Do you see what's happening? Paul has persuaded many in our own city and all over Asia, all over what we would call modern Turkey. He has persuaded them that the gods that we serve and, and, and what our livelihood is, is tied to, that those aren't gods at all. And this is a dangerous scenario. So what's happened here is that these new believers' personal faith didn't remain private, but worked itself out in, in the public sphere and was actually causing a huge disturbance in their community. 
their reallocation of their finances, of their time, of their affections, of their worship focus, was actually causing an economic downturn in their city. And the public effect of their commitment to discipleship and honoring Jesus with their whole lives is causing a gospel disturbance, but a huge disturbance nonetheless. I wonder what industries would go bankrupt if we as believers were committed to living out our Christian discipleship with such fervor in every area of life. Remember, Jesus said to, to, to look, where your treasure goes, there your heart will also be. These Ephesians were living testimonies of that truth. And, and they weren't only making a financial impact, but also impacting the civic and the religious aspects of their city's culture, as those were all bound up together in the Roman world. The point is, these new Ephesian disciples refused to simply practice their Christianity during their quiet times behind closed doors, in their little worship gathering, in private. Their committed discipleship was impacting every area of their city because they lived it consistently in business, family, religious, civil, and social aspects. Pastor and author Mark Dever has said that Christianity is personal, but not private. And I think he's absolutely right. Christianity is personal, but not private. Now, he meant that to, to be talking about our faith that has built-in personal accountability and spiritual responsibility for one another's discipleship in the local church. But I think that quote also applies in the sense that our Christian discipleship is personal, but how we follow Jesus necessarily affects the public sphere, sphere all around us. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14 to 16 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the goal. And of course, we know that's not always the result as we see in this passage here. People don't always see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Sometimes they revolt. Sometimes there's violence. Sometimes there's disturbance. And so this is essentially what we've described in Acts 19. And I wonder, does it describe us? A city on a hill. Giving light to all people. Are we publicly following Jesus in word and in deed or content to have a private faith that doesn't make too many waves or cause too much trouble? Are we following Jesus in word and in deed? Think about that, in word and in deed. How are you speaking publicly and consistently about Jesus? Do you speak about Jesus? Are you known in your circle as one who proclaims the gospel to others when there's opportunity? Does the gospel shape how you speak about your boss or politics or about what you treasure? What words are you known for? What is your social media account known for? How about indeed? Does how you live your life in public for others to see commend the gospel? Does your discipleship come through in your business dealings with your parenting of your children? 
with the honoring of your parents in your dating life or married life? Hopefully those are are different people. (laughs) Does your involvement and relationships at church show a priority of honoring Jesus above all? Or do other priorities take over your weekend most of the time? Taking personal faith public influences the cultural conversation and the cultural climate. And that was true in Ephesus and it's true today. Imagine the multiplying effect of each believer in this room and in every Christ-honoring church being unapologetically public about following Jesus. Not shoving it in people's faces, not to boast or to show off, but to season the culture with salt and to be God's hands and feet in the real world. I imagine a lot of positive things would come from that and, and, and probably also more pushback than we're used to just like the great disturbance that started to grow in Ephesus. So let's continue the story and move on to a second way committed discipleship can create gospel disturbance, which is committed discipleship wholeheartedly embraces the exclusivity of Christ. Committed discipleship wholeheartedly embraces the exclusivity of Christ. Now I know as we start this section, you're probably thinking, this is not a popular opinion. It is probably in this room, but not out there. As we already saw, these new Ephesian believers were turning away from their sorcery, from their worship of Artemis, and turning toward Christ. But it's important to notice the end of verse 23. About that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, again, was what people called following Jesus. Christianity was simply known in many places at the time as the way. Not a way. The way. There's a definite article there. The way. The exclusive way. The only way. This is no doubt how the Christians understood following Christ and how they came to be known as Christ followers, as followers of the way. And just as it is not popular teaching in our culture, this was not popular teaching in the context of ancient Ephesus either. There were many gods, of course, in in the ancient world to be worshipped. And it didn't go over well to reject them from any aspect of life, touch them all. It was not easy to say, there's only one God. There's only one way. And yet there is only the God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. And this led to further disturbance as Demetrius the silversmith honed in on the fact that Paul, and no doubt the other Christians there, held this position. In fact, he says in verse 26, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you believe this guy? He says they're not gods at all. Demetrius heard them right. Jesus himself taught in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. 
I think we do this fairly well at New Branch, but still, we need to lean in to the exclusive claims of Jesus in the Bible that there's only one God and there is no other name under heaven by which men and women may be saved. It can be tempting to undersell that. Right? The gospel reveals to us that we are hopelessly lost apart from God's grace. That we are sinners who have rebelled against our creator God. As crazy as that is, we have rebelled against him. And that there is no other way for us to escape the judgment that we deserve for our own sin in hell for eternity than to receive the free gift of salvation that God has offered through his only son, Jesus. The Lord Jesus came to be the only means of salvation by joining himself to humanity when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, lived the perfect life that that we are called to but could never live up to, and gave himself as the sacrifice for our sin once and for all through an excruciating death on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and then raised from the dead to proclaim new life to all who would receive him by grace through faith. His resurrection tells us his payment was sufficient to cleanse us from our sins if we'll believe. And there is no other way. There is no other way. The only way that we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to a relationship with the God who loves us and created us. And one day go on to live with him for eternity in heaven is grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you've never believed that this morning, maybe you're visiting with us, maybe you've been wrestling with it, I would call you to receive Jesus by faith if you haven't today. Even now, right where you sit, cry out to him in faith. Because there is no other way. And if you have received Christ, lean into this exclusive claim of Jesus and the Bible. Proclaim him to our culture Around us, some will reject, some will mock, but some will receive Christ by faith. It may cause a bit of a disturbance, but some will believe. They'll embrace the beauty and grace of God's exclusive way of salvation in Christ and share with even others who need to find that way and the truth and the life. Committed discipleship wholeheartedly embraces the exclusivity of Christ. If that wasn't enough of a disturbance in Ephesus and today, finally, let's turn to a third way committed discipleship can create gospel disturbance, which is that committed discipleship inherently challenges our culture's idolatry. Inherently challenges our culture's idolatry. Verses 23 to 41 make this clear. This is connected to the first point that I made this morning, that true discipleship is, is uh, or the last point, that true discipleship is committed to the exclusivity of Christ. Because that's true, there's a challenge to idolatry in every culture, anywhere in the world, at any time in history where the gospel is proclaimed. You can see this unfold, verses 23 to 41, first in Demetrius' speech, 
In verses 24 to 27, he, he there recognizes that there's a direct challenge to the literal idolatry. He doesn't think of it in terms of idolatry, but that's what it is. There's a direct challenge to the literal idolatry of worshiping at the temple of Artemis. And Demetrius is stirring up the crowd to become enraged over the possibility that their beloved Artemis of the Ephesians would be, as he says, counted as nothing. Verse 25, or verse 27, that she would be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And he's not exaggerating there. This was big time worship. All of Asia did worship Artemis. People came from all over the world. The population of the city would swell during certain festivals. Artemis, or or the Latin Diana, was one of the most worshipped goddesses of the ancient world. And her temple was a jaw-dropping, magnificent structure. In fact, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And it had been the largest building in the Greek world. This is an important place to these people. It was an opulent and revered structure. It was supported by a hundred beautiful columns and was driving the economic and religious aspects of the entire region. Remember, it was bound up with the silversmith's economy and and business was dropping now that those Christians were challenging their idolatrous worship. But if you read in between the lines, there are other idolatries at play beside the literal one of of the, the, the temple of Artemis and, and the shrines and, and so forth. Demetrius' first concern actually seems to be about money, right? And we can relate to that. It's about their wealth. Verse 25 and 27 make that clear. There's also the status of their city and the status of their trade guild and, and their whole identity wrapped up in this, this whole agenda, this whole exercise, We in our culture have many of the same idols of wealth and status and civic pride and and work and identity. People feel strongly about such things. And where the gospel of Christ disrupts, hostility often erupts. There's a tension between those in the domain of darkness and those who have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as it's put in Colossians 1.13. Those are at odds with each other. And so, of course, there's going to be challenge to the cultural idolatry in any culture where Christ is proclaimed. There's spiritual warfare behind all of these hostilities. And as we read verses 28 to 41, Demetrius was really successful in whipping up a frenzy against Paul and and the other Christians. And this is because people's emotions are so bound up with all these idolatrous loves that we just mentioned and many more. And some in the crowd are just stirred up with emotionalism. It says many of them don't even know why they're there. They don't know why they're screaming. They're, They're just angry and confused. And I think that's also true of our day when there's these kind of disturbances in our culture. We can all get worked up over sort of the culture wars and different issues that everyone feels so strongly about, but many are just confused and angry about their life and their situation, their circumstance. They're easily swayed. 
So verses 29 to 31 say, So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, think about that. You know, Paul's a bold guy. And he sees these thousands of people, this theater there in Ephesus, held some reports up to even 25,000 people. He wants to go down and get in the fray, and the disciples won't let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who are sort of like civic rulers that apparently he's become friends with, because he's been there two and a half years or so, they sent to him, and they were urging him not to venture into the theater. So all this craziness, and, and so loud, such a disturbance. And then the Jews put forward a man named Alexander to try to make clear that the Jews, not the Christians, Jewish Christians, but the Jews, we're different from these Christians that are causing all the problems. He wants to differentiate themselves from the way. But as soon as they recognize him as a Jew, one who also is monotheistic, they shout him down. No one seems to be able to quiet the crowd. They are enraged and confused and crying out for hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can just imagine them yelling themselves hoarse. Finally, the town clerk, who was the highest administrative official in the city, and kind of charged with keeping things in check on behalf of, of Rome, he sees his opportunity somewhere in there to step up and try to quiet down the riot. And he's not really on one side or the other. I think he's just trying to do his job. His interest is in keeping peace. And so he appeals to them in verses 35 to 41. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? This is almost certainly a meteorite that fell from the sky and either sort of looked like the visible representation of Artemis or they fashioned to look like the visible representation of Artemis and was placed in a place of veneration in the temple. He says, everyone knows how great our temple is. Everyone knows about the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now he's maybe not accurate. Maybe he doesn't understand exactly Paul's message because I'm pretty sure that, that Paul was probably blaspheming their goddess at some level. So it could be that he's unclear on Paul's message or, or maybe he's just focusing on the fact that Paul and the Christians were seemingly more proclaiming a positive message about Jesus rather than bashing Artemis specifically. Right? There's a little bit of asymmetry in their wisdom of, of how they're preaching the gospel, I think. They're, they're coming to proclaim Jesus and let events play out as they will, as it has already, as we've read, with, with the many believers that have come to Christ. Instead of going around and, and just specifically bashing Artemis or, or the other gods, kind of like he did in Athens a few chapters back, where in wisdom he looked for a connection point that would make sense to them. Instead of shouting down all their idols and all their gods, he said, let me tell you about the one unknown God, because you really ought to know him. So we don't know if the, if the 
the town clerk is mistaken or, or just he's heard the positive message about Jesus and not so much a negative message about Artemis. In any case, he, he continues, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. Right? He points them to the, the legal system that they have set up to deal with these kind of things. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. They, they have gatherings where decisions are made for the city. But he says, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Now that's interesting. There's a sub-theme in, in the book of Acts on how the government in, intersects with these new Christians in different places in the Roman Empire. And what's happening is, if you read all those, there's sort of a case being built that actually the problem in these types of situations are not the Christians. It's everybody else's reaction to the Christians. They're causing the disturbance. And so, verse 41, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So he's successful in bringing peace under God's providential hand. The town clerk fulfills one of the most basic functions for which God institutes government to keep the peace to seek to only punish those who are doing evil rather than those who are doing good. But again, this was a huge disturbance because people love their idols. Everyone worships something and usually many things, but true discipleship is committed to the exclusivity of Christ. So we must bring a challenge first to the idolatry of our own hearts just because we've accepted Jesus doesn't mean we don't struggle with with wanting other things more than God at times so we first must bring a challenge to the idolatry of our own hearts as well as the broader culture as we proclaim the gospel but it starts with us we got to look here before we look out in the world I think Jesus said something about removing the log from your own eye before trying to help someone remove the speck from theirs We must challenge and repent of the idols in our own hearts like the Ephesian believers did in Acts 19. There's a famous old sermon. I know it's been mentioned in in sermons in the past here over the last couple years, but a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Scottish minister and theologian Thomas Chalmers. He wrote it in the early 1800s. He talked about our complete inability to change just by trying harder and exerting whatever willpower that we have in us. And the point of his sermon comes out when he writes this. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. The expulsive power of a new affection. I take that to mean we must see God as glorious in Christ and see him as our greatest good. And then all of our impure affections, our idols, are crowded out, so to speak. They they die for lack of oxygen in our hearts. Later in that sermon, Chalmers adds, We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And so, Christian, you must fight to behold the glory of the Lord in Christ. 
we fight to behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, talking about in the scriptures. And if we behold his glory, we will be transformed into the same image of God. From one degree of glory to another, it says just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we will be conformed to his character and our affections will be drawn to him. We will start to love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. And these new affections for Christ are the surest way to expel the idols of our hearts and experience spiritual transformation from the inside out. And as the world then hears our message and they see the beauty of Christ, their idols will likewise be cast down. But let us not forget that we were like them not not long ago. We were still under the tyranny of idolatry. Through the gospel, Christians' hearts are transformed and idols expelled. And so it starts with us here in the church. And then it spreads to the surrounding culture. And this is, in fact, exactly what Demetrius is so afraid of in in Acts 19.27. Paul has started this here in Ephesus. And now people all over Asia. This is spreading. And this is a problem. And so we ought to take note that the way to truly effect Change in our communities, especially eternal change, isn't ultimately by directly fighting the idols of the world through what we might call culture wars. It's not by imposing our vision of the world on everyone else or or political power plays or campaigning against certain vices. It's often through, not often through that kind of direct action at all. Instead, it's, it's through walking with the Lord faithfully and persevering in gospel ministry together. And so while I don't think that we should be focused on fighting culture wars, sometimes we do, in fact, find ourselves in the heat of the battle simply because we're faithfully following Jesus in committed discipleship. Sometimes the culture war comes to us. That's basically what happened here in the second half of Acts 19. You'll remember At the beginning of our passage in verses 21 to 22, Paul thought he was done ministering in Ephesus. He's making preparations to move on. He's sent some of his workers ahead. He wants to go to Macedonia, Achaia. After he sees Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome. Then he wants to go to Spain, we learn in the book of Romans. So he's ready to move on, and then suddenly... He finds himself, along with the other Christians in Ephesus, in a culture war reaction to the results of their Christian discipleship. And so this story that Luke records for us reveals how a community of transformed believers can affect the culture around us, even when the reaction is negative, a kind of culture war reaction to Christ. Luke shows us the example of the church as it challenges the culture by walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, which he wrote to these same Christians a little bit later in Ephesians 4, 1-2. And so church, note they didn't attack the non-Christians around them. They didn't try to force non-Christians to start to behave like Christians. They didn't organize protests against the sins in their community. I'm not saying that's wrong. There might be good reason and a place for campaigning against public sin in 
various ways and for various reasons. But I just want to point out that instead the church proclaimed the gospel and they backed it up with their committed discipleship and they let their lives be the loudest thing about them. I think that's a pretty consistent theme in the New Testament. Right? They set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. So people might ask him, what hope do you have? 1 Peter 3.15. I think that's the idea here. There was no seeking out on their behalf of starting a culture war, though they suddenly found themselves in the battle nonetheless. And if you read it through that lens, the culture war here in Ephesus that was declared on the way, declared on these Christians, encompassed many aspects of life that we deal with today. Demetrius the silversmith and and the others who were causing such disruption focused on issues of economics, civil and political issues, religious issues, attacking and rejecting outsiders, right? They grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus, these Macedonians who weren't from around there, put the blame on them. They wouldn't even let a Jew speak to them. And it, this episode even included clashes in the political realm and, and different mid-level and administrative officials of the Roman Empire, the Asiarchs or the town clerk, with differing perspectives on what's going on. And, and in this culture war, verse 27 and, and several other places, make it clear there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of outrage, a lot of confusion. That's what was reigning in the crowd. And so I think this passage reminds us that we respond indirectly through example and persuasion, not by coercion or force. And one of my professors from years ago back in uh, college used to repeat often a phrase, be a disciple, make a disciple, change the world. It was drilled into us. Be a disciple, make a disciple, change the world. And I think this is what we see in the years ahead in Ephesus. If we fast forward from this incident, we see a a pretty thriving church there. We we read the the letter to the Ephesians. That gives us a a pretty good glimpse into the, the church there. We see there was a call to them as it was to us to be a disciple, make a disciple, and change the world. Faithful ongoing ministry characterized that church for many years and that should be our response to any culture wars directed at us today that the church in Ephesus continued the long slow work of being and making disciples of faithful gospel ministry later Timothy would become their pastor the apostle John would spend time ministering there they weren't perfect of course But I think the common thread there is being disciples, making disciples, and changing the world. And sometimes that's going to make people uncomfortable for all the right reasons. And so church, let's heed the call. Follow Jesus together in committed discipleship to be a disturbing gospel witness. And we'll trust the Lord for the results. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for calling us to yourself out of our many idolatries, out of our rebellion. 
Lord, we would not come to you unless you first loved us. And in fact, we do love you because you first loved us. Lord, would you teach us more and more what it means to walk in committed discipleship to Jesus, to be conformed to his image? And may we stand out as distinct and a called out people in our own context here. Would we not be content with a private Christianity that never ruffles any feathers? Would we wholeheartedly bank on Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life? And may that actually shape how we live. And may we, by virtue of our discipleship, of our becoming more like Jesus, stand over and against our culture as an alternative to the idolatries we see everywhere around us, that that people might see the life of the Christians in this body and in this area of the country and across our nation, and yes, even across the world, and be drawn to people who have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness and redemption. Lord, would you use us in winsome ways, in maybe unexpected ways, but in some disturbing ways to make people a little bit uncomfortable with where they're at and just continuing on their day-to-day lives as they walk down the path to eternal judgment because they do not know Christ. Would you be pleased, just as your word spread from the Ephesians to all of Asia and continued on to the nations, would you be pleased to use us to see people come to Christ here in our counties and in Georgia and in the United States and across the globe? Would you be glorified in all these things in Jesus' name? Amen.